This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we hear from Crosscut Science and Environment reporter Hannah Weinberger about how two coastal communities in Washington are tackling their most devastating existential threat, flooding. This is the scene in Aberdeen tonight where some streets, as you can see, are already underwater. Hannah is part of a team of Crosscut journalists who recently traveled to Grays Harbor County to see how an unprecedented infusion of federal money is being used to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing the area. There, Hannah found that a multi-million dollar levy project may be the only hope for two small cities to stay above water. Literally. But also economically. Because it turns out, the threat of flooding can be just as devastating as the floodwaters themselves, making even the abstract realities of climate change a lot more tangible. So, Hannah, I know that you recently spent a lot of time in Grays Harbor County, and I gotta say that My reaction to your story, I mean, one of my reactions was just to be utterly blown away by how high the stakes really are. Right. This story started out as an effort to figure out what this influx of federal money means for this place where people have historically felt kind of ignored and under-resourced. And what we found is that this project, those levies um, that the money is going toward, really feels like a Hail Mary for a community that's between a rock and a hard place during the climate crisis. You know, it's just people are not aware. I mean, they they move into a house in the floods and they they don't really understand the risk. It's far greater than, than people realize. In the last five years, there's never been a year that that we didn't have significant flooding. I mean, it it might not get the disaster level, but we have significant flooding every year. The cities of Hope, Women, and Aberdeen, which are kind of tucked into uh, Grays Harbor on the Washington coast, used to be these booming timber towns that grew up along the water and took advantage of port access. And the area has always experienced some flooding, which is kind of unavoidable when you're surrounded by so many rivers and you're built up on tide flats, effectively. Um, Brian Shea, who is the city administrator of Hoquiam. My name is Brian Shea, and I'm the city administrator here at the city of Hoquiam. He could remember growing up in South Aberdeen, being in a rowboat with his dad in the middle of the street. Lots of experience with with flooding uh, in Aberdeen, Hoquiam, my entire life. Like, this is just something that is kind of a part of being in a coastal community. Like, you have floods as a central part of your culture. But over the decades, flooding has become more severe with sea level rise and worsening rains. Um, As an adult, uh, when I was working for the city of Aberdeen, um, the home I lived in at the time, it had so much flooding that we had maybe two feet of water in our basement. And actually we're on King 5 TV because they were down covering the the storm. And then here at the city, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of floods, I mean, year after year, and, and the biggest that, that's happened since I've been here was back in 2015 when we had a foot of water over the state highway for roughly three days because the flooding was so bad. And it was um, made much worse by landslides that happened that plugged all the storm drains. So it took a long time to get the floodwaters out. Yeah, things, things are getting worse. Um, there's natural variation year to year in our climate. Um, things don't only get worse all the time as we've seen with wildfire, but... Scientists certainly are finding that climate change is exacerbating 
a lot of the things that produced this catastrophic coastal flooding from rising seas and extreme rain. All right, so we are on Queens Avenue right now in Oakland, and we are looking at a house that is actually completely off its foundation and pushed into the road. And the expectation is that rain and sea level rise will become more extreme overall. And one expectation from like 2018 data is that Grays Harbor could see sea levels rise nearly 10 feet within the century, guaranteeing an annual flood well above the current high tide level. And these communities are at sea level. Like this is a port city. Mm -hmm. So people who've lived in these cities their whole lives are telling me they've never seen flooding quite like what they've experienced the past few years so regularly. Oh my gosh. This is not good. It's not good. Look at me. Look at the sea lands like from here. Zoom in. See, there's one of the houses that came into the road. So, you know, I've heard in these conversations that flooding is something people have learned to not only live with, but identify with. So much of local lore relates to flooding and people take pride in knowing what to do. But the expense around newer, bigger floods is definitely something that's put people on alert. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not it's not only the floods themselves. It's the threat of the floods that is actually, in this moment, existentially threatening this community. Right. You don't actively need to have everything underwater for you to feel threatened by this thing. Like just the specter of flooding has put kind of this mark on this community and made it difficult to survive here already. You know, over the past half century, the federal government has provided flood insurance. And in the past few years, there's been a little bit of a shift here where private flood insurance is an option now. It is a little more accessible, but Um, Historically, people were limited to federal policies, and they've been ballooning in cost over the past few years since the government stopped subsidizing them. Your insurance rates could see a drastic change in the coming months and days, and it's all because an update to the National Flood Insurance Program. A lot of people have found themselves struggling to pay, you know, over the past decade, their flood insurance costs uh, in a place where the average income is way less than what it is in a place like Seattle, even if insurance costs are going down on private plans. But the knowledge that this insurance is mandatory, and a lot of people would tell you there's a good reason it is, because flooding does happen, has reportedly prevented some people and companies from investing in properties or improving properties or putting down roots here. In addition to flooding, it's that burden that that flood insurance puts on people. But from an economic development standpoint with the city, uh, it's even more burdensome because if you're in the flood zone and you want to build... um, Number one, you have to you have to get flood insurance to, to back your, your mortgage or your loan, but there's also additional building requirements. So. so, you know, we talked a little about flood insurance, but the other side of the coin for this extra federal level attention for areas in special hazard zones for flooding are that they have extra building requirements. Um, and that means that anytime there's a major renovation, like over 50% of the value of the property, or there's new construction, the work needs to be done in alignment with a really strict building code for how high up a building needs to be and elevating a home so that it's above the floodplain, like out of the way of destruction can oftentimes be more expensive than the actual work that people were just trying to have done. If you look around town, we have all kinds of vacant lots where maybe there were homes at one point in time that were torn down, but they sit vacant because it's so much more expensive to build on those. 
or challenging because of the flood insurance requirements that they just sit vacant. And, you know, as I heard from some people, like, how do you attract a business to an area where it's hard to maintain homes? Uh, in fact, our, there is a huge commercial piece of property in our community that's um, probably 10 blocks from the river, but it sits in the flood zone. It's four acres of undeveloped commercial property. I mean, it, it is just sitting there ripe for development. And there are people, big companies have looked at that site, but they, they won't move forward until it's out of the flood zone. So I think that the, the so many reasons being in the flood zone holds our community back. And I mean, I won't, I won't try to pin every issue these communities are facing on floods and related <laughs> flood insurance, but it's definitely something that people feel very strongly about. It does seem like regarding um, being on the floodplain, yeah, it's always been on the floodplain. In some ways, I understand that part of the reason that the building codes are challenging now is because the community was built in a way that wouldn't have been allowed now, right? Right. Like you're not super allowed to just put a city on tide flats anymore, <laughs> you know, for good reason. But yeah, like when you look at this community, they are digging their heels in to a place that is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of inherently vulnerable, but more and more and more so because of climate change. This community is facing what a lot of coastal communities are facing everywhere, which is how do we sustain ourselves with the threat of flooding, for example, but also the threat of the threat of flooding what choices does Grace Harbor County even have? There are three big choices communities in this situation have. They can move. Like um, the Quinault Indian Nation has opted to move entire communities like Queets and Tahola. Quinault are building a new village on higher ground. It's just Mother Nature's way of like letting us know, make a change or else this is what's going to keep happening. There are a couple hundred people. The uh, reservation has some land at higher elevation. And, you know, it is a huge ask of these communities to make that decision. They have such strong cultural ties to the place that they live in. So it's like a huge and courageous thing for them to do. Um, but if you don't do that, you could also raise all of the buildings in your town above the floodplain. That is also super expensive. Or like here, you can dig your heels in and try to just build defensive structures like levees. I mean, there's it'll be the, the project of the greatest magnitude, the biggest infrastructure project that the two communities have ever done. Brian Shea is the levy booster. And that's a, a once in a generation project. He's the one hearing about the stress of flood insurance premiums. He's the person hearing about you know, how hard it can be to attract business sometimes, or the person who's trying to figure out what to do about jobs. He has the weight of his community on his shoulders and has really made this something that he is laser focused on. I've done a lot of infrastructure projects in my career, but none has been more rewarding than this one. This project, it's called the Aberdeen Hoquiam Flood Protection Project, has been in the works for nearly a decade, but it was kind of looked at as a moonshot. Like they didn't have the funding and this is many, many millions of dollars. But over the past two years, the federal government has allocated some pretty significant funding 
towards the levees and the pump station through this program called the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Grants. I did not think that we would get so many grant dollars that would reduce the burden on our citizens. And so knowing that we are a, a low-income community and a community that's been economically challenged for so many years, it's so much more rewarding to, to, to have gotten those grants. And getting nearly $200 million for a project like this, for a community like this, has not a lot of precedent behind it. And he's been kind of haunted by how he's going to pay it, but has been really touched by uh, the fact that a lot of this funding has come down the line recently. I'm really hoping our citizens are just in such a better position, you know, four years from now than they are today. What stands in the way right now between Grace Harbor County and having these levees in operation? I mean, before things can even start with construction, you need to have a final design. You need to have everyone with a stake in this way and on it and okay it. You need to have at least two dozen permits, a lot of which relate to environmental impact okayed. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of stakeholders in this community, like the Quinault and you know other tribes in the area. Their tribal treaty rights are at stake. Some of them own buildings or property in the area. Like, it's not just like, oh, the cities of Hoke William and Aberdeen, their leadership say it's okay and we do it. Like, there's so many other governments mm. involved. Um, and then you have to make sure you have all of the people to build the levees and you build it on the timeline and it isn't you know, interrupted by catastrophic flooding midway and you have to start over. Like, yeah. there's so many things just to getting this thing in the ground. And there's still that funding gap a little bit. Um, so, I mean, this isn't something that is guaranteed to happen, but you know, when you talk to someone like Brian, he'll say, no, it's happening. We are doing this. There's no way we're not doing this. We will find a way. (laughs) Ultimately, I think I always had the belief that we, we would get the funding one way or another. Right. But yeah, there are a lot of obstacles. And then even when it is built, I mean, it's not going to prevent all flooding, right? It's not going to, you know, solve every drop of water coming into this community, I imagine. Yeah, it doesn't immediately solve things. Um, Not only are there other types of flooding, but the levees have to be certified in order for all of these changes to the building code and flood insurance requirements to change. Um, And that's really up to FEMA. I think they're they are in a place where they are trying to do the best given the situation that they are in. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this story is going to probably continue to happen all over the world. What do you think this Grays Harbor story kind of says to these other communities? What message does it send? When I was talking with hazard mitigation scientists and professionals, one of the big takeaways that I got was that we should stress the fact that this community is making a decision at all. Mm. They are at least trying to figure out what to do instead of just delaying the inevitable. So regardless of what happens, a lot of people were telling me they should be commended for not just reacting, but being proactive here, especially when they don't already have a lot of resources to allocate at the outset. So the solution for each individual community will be different. You know, not every community has the same relationship with place. Not every community has the same culture related to their specific shoreline. 
Um, so each community will have to decide what it values and make the appropriate decision for them about how they respond and then find the funds to do that. You know, there's there's a very pragmatic element to all of this where what you want is hopefully something you can also afford. And with so much new federal funding that will hopefully get distributed efficiently, this might actually be a possibility for a lot of communities. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Hannah Weinberger and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.